know that I've, I, I've ever been this excited for a marathon. And I know we just did like two months of cowboy movies, which was mm-hmm. real cool. But that was fun. This is real exciting, guys. Well, You've been on this one a while. This is like America's cowboy. I mean, again, he he is uh, the Gen X Clint Eastwood. He is, and you know there is sort of the connection to the American uh, late twentieth century western with uh, Mister Hopper and Easy Rider and all of that stuff going. He's he's a postmodern American hero because he's you know from Canada and of uh, a <laughs> of a very you know mixed pan ethnic background. He he is truly the, uh, the the postmodern American hero in many ways. And and we've done a little mini marathon by doing Super Mario Brothers in the past, not re- not too far in the past. And yeah. now we're looking at here Dennis Hopper yet again. And so. we will get Dennis Hopper yet again next week. That was totally by accident and I'm completely so glad. None of us had any idea Dennis Hopper was in this movie. Nope. But he's fun. Oh, he's a hoot. He's a hoot. Very clearly just coming off of Blue Velvet. But I really yeah. wanted to scream Pabst Blue Ribbon. I really yep. did. <laughs> well, uh, it's good to be here. It's A lot's happened this week. Uh, we really called our shot. Uh, the internet let us all know that, uh, well, look, I'm not going to give myself too much credit, but uh, people have let me know that I, I knew about the Year of the Cowboy, but really all of us knew. I mean, we scheduled that Western Marathon together, and uh, Old Town Road has come, and Reshape popular culture in the week we took off for your sick day, Dustin, and uh, it's been a busy week. It has been. A lot going on. Ooh, yeah. Things have been on fire. Been yeah, yeah, stuff. Stu- yeah. Presum- and here's the thing. It's called the planet. When this finally comes out several weeks from now, uh, there likely will be something else on fire. <laughs> yes. So timely. Yeah. Evergreen. Evergreen content. <laughs> oh, golly. Uh, I hope this doesn't bite us. Oh, Man, me me too. You so, guys, you guys remember when we uh, had that running bit where we couldn't remember if Abe Bogota had passed away, and then literally a week after we couldn't remember he died. I do remember. You guys remember that? that? Yeah. 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 We got to be careful about calling our shots in this show because <laughs> yeah, sometimes things just happen. Well, I don't want to be responsible. Well, for well we are, we've already killed Agnes Varda. Fuck, we killed Agnes Varda <laughs> and Abe Bogota. Oh my uh, god! All Dalton Salt. Oh no! I mean, we are. We're who's next? This show is dangerous. Th- th- this show has a body count. Is this the Notebook or Death Book? Oh no! Death Note. No. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather at a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is The River's Edge, or is it just River's Edge? No, no definite. Article. No definite article. Just any river, any yeah. river, and anywhere. Every River's Edge. Every river it's America. America. Uh, <laughs> Beginning our Keanu Reeves marathon. Do we have a catchy name for this marathon? I haven't thought of one yet. I haven't either. Uh, we'll see what we come up Keanu, with. Keanu, the second greatest actor of all time, period. How much more interesting would the notebook be if it did have a death note plot? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if Noah's letters uh, not being opened caused an un- unspeakable series of events to unfold. Yes. You, sir, are off the rails. All the time. So the show often is, and that's when it's usually at its best. So um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Still Dalton. And we are here to talk about these movies in terms of analysis, not review. And that means we're going to spoil them. So if you have not caught up with 1986's uh, Spirit Award winning f- independent film, River's Edge, you should. But um, we're going to spoil it in the course of talking about it. And, I, and I'm one of these people, and I, this is a thing we should maybe discuss. I'm a guy that doesn't care about spoilers. I don't care if I know how it's going to happen because I can still watch the cinematic experience and feel the events unfold even though I may be able to predict it. Unless it's one of those, you know, Sixth Sense, Shyamalan kind of things where, you know, everything hinges on the plot twist. But otherwise, I'm all about it. Well, for the most part, I don't mind, especially if it's a thing kind of taken out of context because I'm kind of intrigued to see how the story gets to that point and what measures are taken 
after that point. Um, but, uh, yeah, for the most part, I don't mind spoilers, but there are a few instances where I don't want to know. Uh, and I think it can cloud the impact of a film if you've already been in on some of those. Definitely. I, I've mentioned this on the show before, but I, I tend to go to the April Wolf of Switchblade Sisters school of thought, which is it's not what happens, but how it happens. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. Sometimes it's nice to have the twist preserved for you. Am I going out searching these uh, in-game spoilers that are out right now? I know the movie will be out by the time this releases, but no, I don't I don't want to know. No, uh, There's certain things that I, I like to go in cold, but, and other things I don't care. But that being said, um, I saw Psycho 3. Before I ever saw Psycho. Incredible. And uh, so I knew, you know, Norman Bates is the, the killer and uh, that he dresses up like his mother. And that did not diminish my experience watching that movie one single bit. And I think it speaks to the craft of the film if it can still work. Yeah. Without with knowing that, you know, you know, Psycho is a good example. I mean, that movie works no matter how many times you've seen it. Yeah. Sixth wa- Sense is the same yeah. way. And I think even Usual Suspects works. I watched Return of the Jedi probably a dozen times before I saw A New Hope or Empire all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it just, if the story works, the story works. So, well, there you go. So, so we say all that to say this. Dennis Hopper kills the uh, the character Samson before the end of the movie. Yes. So, yeah. Spoilers will be happening. It's fine. If you haven't seen River's Edge. Is this before or after Samson uh, knocks the pillars down and kills all the Philistines? Different story. Oh, I, I Different watched, Samson. I watched the wrong movie. Did you watch the History <laughs> Channel miniseries of The Bible I, by I, Jerry Bruckheimer? I watched The River's Edge, the true story of Samson. <laughs> Was that not the right thing? Nope. You did the wrong side That's reading. why I had you the definite the article. Flicks House version of Samson. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, spoilers will Kurt abound. Cameron Samson. Kirk Cameron as Samson. Oh, my God. Hey, Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Samson. I would watch that movie. Would you watch that movie? Yeah, 100%. Samson and Delilah? Yeah. Mm, Who Mm. plays Delilah in that movie? Ooh, Sophia Batella. Yep. You got it. You got it. That's it. First try. First try. Number one with a bullet. Okay. All right, let's talk about River's Edge, huh? I I guess so. Um, Can we hear a synopsis, Arthur? Yeah. Loosely based on the murder of Marcy Conrad, Tim Hunter's 1987 independent release, River's Edge, is a dark exploration of teenage youth. The events of the film unfurl over the course of a few days following the murder of Jamie at the hands of her boyfriend, John, played by Daniel Roebuck. John is seen with the corpse by Tim, played by Joshua John Miller, who is throwing his sister's doll into the river near the location of Jamie's body. Later, when Tim reveals what he saw to John, it is brushed off. At school, John begins telling everyone that he has killed Jamie, including his friends Matt and Lane, as portrayed by Keanu Reeves and Crispin Glover. Nobody believes John, so he brings them all to the river to see the corpse. Everyone is a bit taken aback except Lane, who feels compelled to help John hide the body. Matt is finally compelled to inform the police. When Lane realizes the body has been found, he tries to help John lay low by taking him to Feck's house. Feck, played by Dennis Hopper, is a local weed dealer who has gone over the edge. Everyone's story begins to spiral out of control, ending in John's murder at the hands of Feck, and a too-close-to-call experience between Matt and Tim. Man, good good synopsis. Are That's you? a very, very good synopsis. So let's just go quickly uh, with uh, whether we like this movie or not. I think we've got more analysis kind of things to say about it. So let's, again, just, just in terms of review, broadest possible strokes, and we'll try to save as much as uh, we possibly can uh, for analysis. But what say you, Dalton? Do you like River's Edge? Liking River's Edge is a tricky feat uh, because it doesn't navigate tone very well. Uh, and I think that's what separates this from something like uh, the work of David Lynch, which this feels really inspired by. Again, the fact that this and Blue Velvet come out within a couple of months of each other, uh, I think, is really telling. Because I think they're they're on the same tip. They're they're definitely there's something in the water in the mid '80s where people are kind of interrogating um, that that first half of the Reagan years, and uh, th- there's definitely something in the water. But I don't 
I just don't know that this does as good a job as uh, as that film, um, Blue Velvet, at, at navigating this kind of weird, otherworldly uh, happening in your backyard tone. I, I, I see what the movie's going for, uh, but there's just there's too many missteps for me to fully endorse it with a, yeah, I love this. Now, that said, I, I do like the movie quite a bit. I think the performances in this film are absolutely astonishing. Um, both, both in terms of their insanity and their commitment. Crispin Glover is doing some weird shit in this movie. If I'm Keanu Reeves on the set of this movie... He's and just I, doing the Crispin Glover thing, though. Yeah, a little bit, but he's, like, dialed up to 12, and he's doing this weird surfer accent that, again, if I'm Keanu Reeves on the set of this movie, I can't see myself not going, Hey, Crispin, are you making fun of me, bro? Because <laughs> he definitely is kind of doing a Keanu Reeves affectation. And again, I don't know if that's closer to Crispin Glover's real-life speaking voice around this part of his life, but I'd never heard him speak this way, so it was very jarring. He does so in a Friday the 13th movie. Really? There, okay. Okay, now i got to get him correct, because there's a he's in one, and then there's another one where the guy's doing him. That's so funny. I, and I'll, okay, more on that later. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, we'll, we'll I'll find there. the info. Um, but, but anyway, I, I am really enthralled by the performances here. Uh, the little brother uh, character, Arthur, I missed his name. Tim? Uh, is Tim? Tim? Tim is uh, Keanu's character. Some call oh, no, him. No, Keanu's character is Matt. Tim, you're Tim. right. Uh, Tim is uh, played by uh, Joshua John Miller from Near Dark, is what I know him from, the Catherine Bigelow movie where he plays a little baby vampire. Um, and he's great. Uh, I love a good child performance because they're, they're so few and far between. Uh, we, we talked a lot about child performances when we did our uh, coming-of-age marathon last year, and uh, it's always interesting just to see a, a good child performance because you wonder where it comes from, especially in a film this dark. Uh, you wonder uh, how uh, a, a child performer kind of is able to go to those places and navigate those things, and uh, it's, it's an interesting performance. But I, I think everybody in this film is interesting. Dennis Hopper's doing some weird stuff. Uh, Ione Skye is doing this really kind of interesting, disaffected performance. I think Daniel Roebuck as Samson. Um, John, they often call him. Uh, he is probably the the best performance in just kind of a traditional sense in this film because he's, I think, giving the most grounded and realistic performance. Uh, but everybody else is doing some kind of weird uh, kabuki mask version of a high school student, if that makes sense. And I, I like it. It works for me more often than not. I think the only problem is everybody's in a different movie. Um, and that that for me just is one of the things that stops me from really like wholeheartedly liking this film is just all of the different wavelengths the performers are on. Um, but I, I will finally say I've saved Keanu for last because this marathon is, is about Keanu. So his performance in this film really, while not, I think, as lights out strong as Roebuck's performance, uh, I think if this film was had been wider seen uh, when it was initially released – we would not have debated for so long whether or not Keanu is a good actor because I think it's clear the second he steps into frame on this film that he's going to be a movie star. Uh, th there's just something about him in every performance he gives, and we'll be talking a lot about that over the next couple of weeks. But I think in this film, you, you can just see that the sensitivity he brings to every scene, the the patience and um, the givingness he has as a scene partner. He's never hogging the camera in any way. Ke Keanu could, I don't know if Keanu could chew scenery, uh, if he tried, but he doesn't ever seem interested in chewing scenery. He seems interested in doing the work and being a good scene partner. Um, and while his range is limited, you're always going to get a variation of Keanu. I think what you're getting out of him is always honest and sincere and engaged in the role. 
Uh, and again, this is he'd only done a handful of TV movies prior to this. This is like his first feature theatrically released film. And it's just incredible to see somebody show up on screen ready to work, even though there's this kind of raw, undirected talent that he has is is really interesting. And I just he's an exciting performer from from the word go. Uh, and uh, I think we'll probably talk about that more as we get into analysis about just what makes Keanu work. But, uh, yeah, for me, the performances here are all great. They're all just in different movies. And that kind of hurts my ability to love this movie fair enough fair enough a uh, production note crispin glover was in uh, friday 13th part four the final chapter gotcha and the guy doing crispin glover as a bit is in part seven uh, i don't remember the subtitle of it but is that's it, the one the psychic is it the same guy that played him in back to the future part two it is not Damn. tragically missed opportunity but there is like a real sort of a uh, you know synergy working there that's fascinating i love crispin glover's refusal to come back for sequels it's it's something else big but, man but i mean I, he couldn't come back for this particular sequel because he died oh. he was dead gotcha, gotcha, J- gotcha. jason cut him up in uh, pieces you would know that arthur what do you think about river's edge how do you feel i uh i'm, I'm kind of with you i i do think uh that first 30 minutes or so i i really didn't know what was going on tonally uh, and it felt like a pretty severe case of whiplash going back and forth because it, it really does open up as this very kind of social realism slice of life drama um but once john has brought in everybody in on his not so secret secret um it it really goes down this rabbit hole into this more surreal absurdist type look at yeah middle class american life there's a real Uh, crossing of the veil moment yeah that, that kind of lynchian thing that we're seeing in blue velvet i think and um and even in uh i mentioned to you guys uh but uh catherine bigelow's um Oh, goodness, I can't think of the title now. The one we watched last year. Oh, The Loveless. Loveless yeah, The Loveless. Yeah. I, I thought a lot about that it one. It feels like well. The Loveless I, a lot. Buddy, me yeah. too, yeah. Um, and, and, and we kind of entered this mirror dimension almost of, of the city. Uh, but uh, once I got in the film's wavelength, once it kind of finds that groove in that part of the film, I, I was more into it. I, I don't necessarily know that I like it or love it, but I'm kind of interested in much like I was The Loveless. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, yeah, Roebuck is really good. Reeves, is obviously, Keanu, I think, does a really good job. And I, I think it speaks a lot about him as a performer because I, I saw a clip. I don't even remember what I was watching. It was just a, a shot of him as from Bill and Ted and just a, like a reaction shot. I don't even know what it was, like a commercial or something on TV or what. Uh, but his performance was so on his face and like how he kind of put yeah. across this dumbfounded, you know, absent-minded thing in Bill and Ted, but to have this more very level-headed straight man performance here. I, th- I think it speaks a lot to his his versatility. I, I think he does have his range that he does have that he just didn't get to show a lot in the 90s yeah. as, as much. And I think, uh, you know, finding that success with a lot of big hits kind of, ch- you know, changed the direction. Kind of like Catherine Bigelow. It's like, you know, what's what direction would he have went in if he had stayed in these kind of lower-budget independent dramas? You know, this, My Own Private Idaho mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, we might have a much different uh, Keanu uh, filmography to look at. Well, I think the the work he does in the post-Matrix years before he kind of yeah. peters out and uh, the studio stopped giving him good roles, I think shows that, that interest in smaller work. Yeah. And uh, especially the work he's doing now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Dennis Hopper, I think, is just a treat, uh, a delight here. Um, just having all sorts of fun with this this character. And I'm I'm not here for Crispin Glover. I, I think he's the really? one that really takes it out of me in, in this movie. I think in this movie that is kind of playing with absurdity and surrealism that he's the one that 
really kind of breaks that veil for me in a way that is too much. I think he's too far gone, yeah. too over the top. Uh, it just doesn't work for me. I went back and forth. Um, I, I didn't realize it until towards the end of the film, but it's being implied that he's doing speed the entire movie, which makes his performance make a lot more sense. But yeah. it feels like it should have been more explicitly stated that yeah, he's doing speed. I don't feel like that's. Yeah, they they comes spend so, they, they talk about everybody smoking pot all the time, and I, I don't know if it's because it's the '80s and they were uncomfortable with suggesting harder drug use, but. Um, Chris McGlover is definitely doing a performance of somebody who hasn't slept in two days because he's been on amphetamines and, and it doesn't become clear until way into the movie. So you're right. It's, it kind of, it's just a hard performance to figure out where he's going with. Weirdly, do you know who he reminded me of? He reminded me of Keithan. A little oh, bit. Yeah. yeah there's just yeah, the, his, like kind of verbal inflection. Yeah. So Keithan, if you're listening to this episode, uh, yeah, Crispin Glover's doing you several years before you were, or a couple of years before you were born. I thought a lot about the Wilson brothers. I thought a lot about Owen and Luke, and that, I think his kind of vocal performance and inflections yeah. sounded a lot like Owen, uh, especially Owen early on, I think. Um, but the rest of the movie, just the kind of investigating the themes that it does and, and the way it plays out uh, is very interesting, I think, uh, especially at the time and then for what it is. Um, but... As far as some of the other technical stuff, nothing really stands out to me. I think it all kind of relies heavily on its themes and and its narrative and, and its performances. I, I don't know that anything really stands out to me from a direction or a technical aspect that other movies would. And so there, there's one choice in particular we'll get to analysis that sticks out for me. But I'm with you, Arthur. I don't know if there's a lot of interesting choices being made here yeah. in terms of the technique. But so. yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I, I'm I'm quite intrigued by it, but I'm not in love with it. What about you, Dustin? Where are you at? Well, guys, let me tell you a couple things about me. Uh-oh. Okay, so she's dead, wrapped in plastic. That's what the first thing I want to say. It's Twin Peaks. Yeah, no. Yeah. Sure. It's absolutely... 100%. One. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that... Again, so we've been talking about Blue Velvet and David Lynch uh, for most of our, our discussion so far. But really, I think the the first episode, that uh, that hour and a half pilot of Twin Peaks, is is really the big parallel here. That makes uh, sense. That we're looking at. So you've got this sort of very Twin Peaksy kind of opening moment. You've got this sort of absurdist, insane kind of situation. You've got uh, this sort of Gen X nihilism, existentialist crisis. Nihilism? Uh, I, I think nihilism that, or nihilism? Nihilism or nihilism? I think it's nihilism. I think it's either or either. Okay, cool. Um, and so, <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever heard it pronounced that way. Nihilism, yeah, I like it. Nihilism. I'm gonna start using that. I like nihilism. Sorry, I would <laughs> say nihilist. I'm so sorry, nihilism I derailed you. No, this is totally fine. Nihilism is the the church of John Neil Armstrong. We <laughs> we, we worship Neil. Um, Neil before Neil. <laughs> Neil <Jesus> before Neil. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? I'm so sorry. Yes, indeed. What have you done? So you've got that. You've got Dennis Hopper doing this insane thing. Again, another very lynchy kind of connection. You've got Slayer on the soundtrack. You, Great soundtrack. And again, this uh, the, 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 that ennui existential crisis of what it means to be in your late teens or your early 20s, these, these Xers that are coming up and just trying to find their way in the world and their baby boomer parents and uh, just trying to negotiate their lives and all that stuff. Um, it's a great little cultural artifact. So for me, I really, really dig it. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. You've got proto Bart Simpson. You've got proto Twin Peaks. You've got proto Bill and Ted. I, I, 
what more do you want, right? Uh, so for for me, I think it's a lot of fun. It's an it's a very very American independent cinema kind of film that's pretty prescient. I mean, Sex Lies and Videotapes is uh, where this thing breaks out later with Soderbergh, and this anticipates a lot of what you're about to see with that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a fan. Yeah, this one, Best Picture at the Independent Spirit Awards, which was, I think, at its third incarnation. So, I mean, wow, yeah, yeah. that was just kind of getting off the ground at, in, what, 87, I think, mm-hmm. what it would have been awarded. Yeah, it's it's a real Very vanguard weird. of 90 cinema in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Not just not just as an independent film, I think, in terms of, like, the themes that it's going for. Yeah, absolutely. So, for me, I think it's, like, it's fascinating just, just how prescient it is. And so, for that, the, the watching experience is, is very enjoyable. Now, do I love all the performances? Not necessarily. Who's your favorite? Uh, my favorite is Dennis Hopper. Fair enough. You know, yeah, definitely Dennis Hopper. Um, I hate Bart Simpson, um, whatever his real name is. Um, that's a terrible, terrible kid, and I just don't like him very much. I like that performance, man. You're, t- you're talking about the little kid, right? Yeah. The younger brother. Proto like good per- son. Mm-hmm. Do what? Proto the good Whoa. son. Whoa. Well, yeah. except for he doesn't pretend to be good ever. Like, there's like no, there is like no zero fail. effort to hide it. Yeah, right? but have you met his parents? Uh, true, but I mean. Parent. Uh, parent. Yeah, parent and male authority figure. And yeah, but it's evil. I mean, and the, the, the doll and then tearing up the doll's little faux grave, you know, because you don't have a body. It's so sad. He's terrible. Yeah, he's really, really rotten. Um, and he's going to shoot his brother. I mean, just nuts. Uh, so there, there's a lot to not like there. Um, and really, Keanu's character is not incredibly likable. No. You know, Elaine's not incredibly likable. Obviously, our killer, Samson's not likable. Um, the The sort of revolving door of uh, female characters that kind of roll in and out of the story. Uh, yeah, Maggie and uh, Clarissa. Clarissa. Ione Sky's character. We don't really get to know uh, any uh, the Clarissa's character. Or Yeah. Um, I really like when she explained it all. <laughs> uh, what's Melissa Joan Hart Ar- 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 up to these days? I don't know. I don't know either. But yeah, we, we don't really get a feel for, for who Maggie is. I mean, we kind of get to know Ione Sky's character, Clarissa, a little bit, but you're right. They kind of are interchangeable until about the third act of the And movie. they're not incredibly pleasant, you know, or likable. And and the, the whole group of them aren't. I'm just I just I'm, I don't care for any of them. And so that that is off-putting, but that's not necessarily a thing that I necessarily just say, "Okay, I don't like this movie anymore." But now, this movie's got some mommy issues though. It does, but it's pretty brave in so in so far as it does not really create any likable characters. So, that's something. And then blow up dolls. But I think it still makes them into that point. The that's a big struggle I have with a lot of recent horror movies, especially teen oriented horror movies, is we get presented with a bunch of unlikable characters. I think of uh uh what's the the Facebook one where everything's taking place. Oh, unfriended. Unfriended, I think of uh Truth or Dare. I think of these movies where you have a group of people who are just miserable human beings and there's nothing interesting. I think at least in River's Edge, we have these unlikable characters, but they're still very compelling. Right. Yeah, I, and that, that that's the difference, is that they're unlikable, so that's sort of against it. But it's it remains interesting. And so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I, I almost paired this, a uh, little spoiler for expanding the syllabus, but I almost paired this with Raging Bull, just in mm. terms of 80s films where nobody is likable. Uh, but it, I decided that it was kind of a forced comparison other than the unlikable characters. But you're right, it's just... Doesn't really give you anybody to hang your hat on. Yeah. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts concerning River's Edge initially. Um, we're going to move into our section of the show where we expand the syllabus. So we're teaching a class, any kind of class, uh, in which this film is the uh, cinematic text for a unit. And uh, we're going to accompany that with other texts, be it films, television, or print. And so uh, that's where what we're doing. So, hey, Arthur. 
What are you doing? Man, I forgot about the segment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, but I think the ones I, I, I already name dropped, uh, Blue Velvet to some extent, because I, I think there are parts of that there. And to your point, I think Twin Peaks uh, later, but I think that we keep going to that dialogue because Blue Velvet was out bef- you know, at the same time as as this or right before this River's Edge. Um, but I think for me, the other, the other thing, you know, is the idea of the bored youth, uh, which this is really kind of playing around with thematically and the, where culture was with this, this group of teenagers at this time who were kind of starting to become very jaded and, and especially in middle America where there's not a lot of wealth to go around and in, in a small town, uh, there's not, not a lot going on. Nah, um, not really. And so it's, you know, try to find stuff to keep you going and keep you entertained. And I think this kind of plugs into some of those. That's where the speed comes in, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got to get through one day quicker than the next. Uh, and, and so that's where some of those tenants come from, I think. And so I think that's something that the Loveless does quite well with Willem Dafoe. You know, it's set in the 50s. You got Willem Dafoe's little motorcycle gang. But it's exploring some of those same ideas of these bored youths uh, just showing up wreaking havoc because they don't have anything else going on and they don't know anything better to do and they're just trying to keep themselves entertained to get to the next day and there's a really hopelessness to it and i think that's kind of a fascinating parallel obviously there's some more lynchian connections with the loveless as well um but for me that's that's the one pairing i would i would look at is trying to flesh out that idea of teenage boredom in cinema and probably starting with some of that stuff and, and moving forward from there. I actually um, will go ahead and jump in now, Arthur. I, I had that on uh, my expanding the syllabus. I had uh, uh, a whatever happened to the American Dream triple feature of this Blue Velvet and the Loveless because I think they all are circling the same idea that's kind of in the consciousness uh, of, of culture at that time. Is that the entirety of your syllabus? No, I got some more. Okay, go ahead. I will continue. Um, I found a Vice Oral History of River's Edge that I thought was pretty good. It's short. It's it's quick read. It's not not super comprehensive, but I, th- I thought it was cool. Um, one thing in there that I, I really liked was that the casting director Carrie Fraser uh, made a point to call Danny Dietz, who played Jamie, the unsung hero of the film. And yeah, buddy, she ain't lying. Being a dead body's hard. Um, I've been fortunate enough to play a dead body for a friend of the show, Nick Sanford, before, and uh, I didn't have to do any acting. Uh, the, the actress that plays Jamie has to do a ton of acting as a dead body. Uh, not the least of which being naked on grass uh, in early morning and late evening several times in this film. Um, yeah, unsung hero, man. She's uh, putting a lot of work on this movie that uh, goes largely unrecognized by the film. Uh, and that's unfortunate. We'll, we'll talk more about the way the camera leers at her later on. Um, but again, the, that vice oral history of the film is really interesting. Uh, I've got some, they've got interviews with the director and the screenwriter, Ioni Sky, um, the Roebuck who plays, um, Samson, uh, good read. Uh, I, I definitely recommend you check it out. I, I would also say that as a larger piece of expanding the syllabus for this entire marathon, you should go check out the recent GQ, uh, profile of Keanu Reeves. Um, I know I've, I said recently on the show, I don't like actor profiles and yet I, this is like the third time recently I've recommended one. There's been some good ones lately, man. Yeah, there have. I don't know what you want from me. Uh, I'm glad that uh, we've got some journalists out there getting good interviews out of, out of people that don't feel like fluff pieces. Because uh, that's usually how these things go, is they kind of turn into a fluff piece for whatever project they're promoting. But yeah, the Keanu one I haven't quite finished yet, but uh, is really good. And uh, I think just a strong primer for this entire marathon. So I, I recommend that. Um, the next thing that you got to do for the syllabus, you got to... 
you got to shake some of the funk off from this movie. you got to watch Lady Bird, the other movie set in Sacramento about teens that I could think of, uh, which probably feels like a much more realistic depiction of teens in Sacramento than this film. Um, and also, Lady Bird is just good as hell. Uh, it's a great film, and uh, we talked about it on the show quite a bit, but I, I love it to pieces. Uh, and again, I, I think it kind of tackles the same questions that this film tackles in a much more grounded and realistic way. Uh, it, it just It's much more a film of a time and place. This Sacramento in this film is just any town USA. I think they just land on Northern California probably because that's where they were shooting at. Uh, whereas Lady Bird is a film about Sacramento and growing up in Sacramento uh, and, and definitely has a much more honest feel about a, a time and a place. And again, this doesn't really feel like an 80s film. It just feels like a youth film. Lady Bird definitely feels like a film about growing up in the mid to late 2000s or early to mid 2000s. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely, definitely recommend Lady Bird. Next, if you want some more nihilistic teens, you got to check out Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers, uh, which a lot of the um, issues with gays and sexualization that this film does not navigate super well, uh, Spring Breakers does a lot better. Uh, I think a lot of the parallels being drawn between sexuality and violence at River's Edge kind of fumbles. Spring Breakers handles with Blom. Um, so you got, I mean, that's, that is essential viewing with this film, I, I think, because I think Spring Breakers takes a lot of the ideas that River's Edge has and, and stretches them out in much more interesting directions, especially just because it lets, uh, female teens be the center of this, this nihilism, which adds a, just a whole different level of, uh, of emotion. And finally, um, if you are interested in films that do a better job of handling a nude, dead female body, you got to check out The Autopsy of Jane Doe, uh, which is the only horror film I've ever seen desexualize a, a naked uh, woman's body. Um, and, and an incredible, and I mean, that's literally what the film is about, is the sexualization of dead women in, in fiction, really. Uh, so I think the autopsy of Jane Doe is a lot better at um, just navigating some of these gross things that happen in River's Edge. Uh, I did have a couple more. Are you wrapped up? Yo, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Oh, I, 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 I thought you were done. Oh, oh, I came up with a couple more things. While okay, we were, I, I go on. Kind of think about this. Hell uh, yeah. One of the other things I thought about when watching this movie, I, I think the obvious parallel of do you want to see a dead body is, mm. is Stand By Me. You guys. Uh, yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> he got you. I know. You, you both have gotten me. Well, you can probably jump in here, but I, I think the idea of Stand By Me and has some of those same ideas of dealing with teen boredom. Mm. But also the underlying, I, I think there's this kind of the saccharine edge to Stand By Me, but I think there's something a lot darker beneath because of the way that story wraps up of, of where all these teens wind up. Mm. All these kids grow up to be low-class workers or, or dead uh, and, and trying to redeem themselves, and, and I think that's a fate that could easily play out just as much with River's Edge as it could Stand By Me. You're absolutely right, yeah. Uh, and, and so that was one I, I thought about. And also, just to your point about Sacramento, but kind of feeling like an everywhere town, I think Halloween uh, oh, yeah. would, would pair here as well. You know, it's set in Haddonfield, Illinois, but it's filmed in California, so it has that anywhere USA kind of feel for it, uh, but also kind of dealing with these these teenagers in a, in a much more interesting, maybe not more interesting, but a, a interesting way nonetheless, and kind of a different way. Yeah, I like your your point about the saccharine edge of Stand by Me because it 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 makes it easier to understand how these children don't really have a conception of death. Uh, this film really feels like it's made from an adult's perspective, so you're always mad at the teens for not understanding the severity of the situation. And Stand by Me, you get that they don't get it because the film is much better at being in their POV. 
Yeah. So I, I like that pairing. Dustin, uh, expand the syllabus, bud. You also want to talk about uh, Stand By Me, huh? And Spring yeah. Breakers. Stand By Me and Spring Breakers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, th- those, are the, those are my two cinematic, you know, additions I would use. Again, if I'm, I'm using River Edge as the uh, primary text, I would actually probably prefer to use Spring Breakers as a primary text with augmentation from these other yeah. two films. But it, I would still clip a lot out of uh, Spring Breakers, if not show that in its entirety. And I would definitely clip hard uh, from The Body. Uh, the the uh, short little novella by Stephen King and also uh, the uh, film starring Keanu's buddy River Phoenix. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot going on there. And then I would add a novel uh, to this, Douglas Couplin's, uh Generation X, uh, which coins the term Generation X and is a sort of meditation on this sort of situation, uh, lifestyle of these uh, young people who are uh, – you know the progeny of the baby boom, and or the baby boomers rather, and uh, how they've got mick jobs with no future, and what that looks like, and you know the sort of boredom uh, that ties up with it, and the strange obsessions with popular culture and whatnot that came to define uh, the X generation um, as it led into the millennials and etc. Uh, th- th- this is uh, my time. Uh for once in a blue moon to flex my sociology degree and remind everyone that generational cohorts, cohorts, there we go, uh, it's uh, pop sociology at best. It's bullshit. Uh, just take everything people say when they throw around words like baby boomer, Gen X, millennials, or the three of us included. Mm-hmm. Take all that shit with a grain of salt because it is... They're constructs. Yeah, we made it up, just like everything. Yeah, uh, They're all repeating cycles of uh, uh, youth and um, age butting heads just you know stuff that we've been working on since forever honestly i mean there are significant sort of sociological differences between people born after 1945 and people born in like say 1940 for sure absolutely you know, i mean there's but, so, uh, uh, population uh, changes immigration changes um large historical events that have wide sweeping political and geopolitical changes you're right there are things that are relevant and there's markers in history that kind of define generations but all of that said, generational cohorts are kind of bullshit. It does. It, 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 you mix both ways, and that's why you, when you look at the breakdown, like when does Gen X end, right? Does it end in 1978? Does it end in 1983? Well, who knows? Um, it doesn't no, really literally matter. no one. It doesn't matter, actually. Yeah. Um, and and it just it, we come down to the individual and where their affinities happen to lie. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. I think now it is time to get down to business. Yes, business. Now I'm going to ask a question, okay? which is going to have to have required some preparation from one of you, mm-hmm. so you may or may not actually be able to answer it. When has being prepared ever stopped any of us from weighing in on something? Okay. A.K.A. Dalton. Well, no, this is like, this is like, I, I give <laughs> me, the, this is a give me the information question. Oh, shit. Um, you said this is based on a real life murder, yes. Arthur, which I did not know. So can you tell me things about that? Um. Arthur is going to his notes as well. Um, I, I had the name written down, but when Arthur uh, said it, I went ahead and deleted it because I was like, oh, well, we won't actually be talking about that. So Yeah, so it's Marcy Renee Conrad. Uh, she was, um, let me see here, uh, from Wikipedia, uh, murder of Marcy Renee Conrad was perpetrated by Anthony Jacques Broussard, a 16-year-old high school student 
uh, Conrad's death gained national attention due to the age of her killer, forcing a reevaluation of California statutes regarding juvenile sentencing uh, for violent crimes. The case triggered widespread media coverage as a stark example of social disaffection amongst uh, suburban youth. Um, subsequent events were the inspiration for the, spring, the screenplay of Tim Hunter for uh, River's Edge. Uh, she was murdered in 1981 at the age of 14. Um, wow. So, yeah, uh, that's that's really about all there is on Wiki. I didn't go look up any of the kind of media from her death, but it, it, it from what I gather, it parallels pretty well with that. Well, like, I was the just inciting very, events. Yeah, I was very fearful. You were going to say, and he told all his friends and no one reported. Yeah. No, that is what happened. That so that part also yeah, is yeah. Neil, part of the story. Neil Jimenez, who wrote the screenplay uh, that Tim Hunter directed, I, I don't think he was from the town where the murder happened, but it like happened in a town nearby or something. Uh, he was home on summer break from college, and we went back and turned in a screenplay for a screenwriting class. Just he basically took all of his friends and plugged them into the story that he had heard about. Um, wow! But yeah, uh, th- those are the only parts, as far as I'm aware of, that are. Uh, based on the actual murder is just that people in town knew and didn't do anything. So from the film River's Edge Wikipedia page, it does say, quote, Broussard bragged about the crime, showing the body to at least 13 different people. Despite this, the crime went unreported for two days. So, yeah, I mean, that that part. It also says here, uh, says that there are some similarities between the film and the 1984 murder of Gary Lowers by his friend Ricky Casso, but I don't know. Uh, This is in the Northport. Um but I don't I don't know much about this one. So. Okay. Well, I figure any type of analysis were t- requires some historical contextualization. Sure. And so when you said that, I didn't look that up. I didn't read the Wikipedia or anything like that on the film. And so I was that that just blew me away. What? Mm-hmm. Dalton and I did more research than Dustin. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, we we got a Wikipedia. <laughs> like, is, hey, yeah. that's uh, something. By Damn the right. way, I'm a professor. That's not research. No. <laughs> Yeah. Nobody's yeah. paying me to be here. <laughs> True facts. Well, okay, five five to ten people are paying us to be here, I guess. Okay. Um, they're paying for us being here. They're paying for the what it costs us to be here. Okay, yeah, fair point. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless. Yeah, you, you're right. Not real research. Uh, I, I'm with you, Arthur, though. I, I didn't... I didn't want to look too much into the real murder because I I was worried about how that much that was going to color my ability to talk about the film because, frankly, I knew I was just going to get upset. Well, I think it does help us sort of wrap our brains around Tim maybe a little bit. Not Tim. Um, yeah, Tim's Matt's, Matt's Keanu, Tim's little brother, right? Correct. Okay. So it does help us Bart. Uh, we'll just call him mini Bart Simpson. Okay. Um, but it, it does sort of help us wrap our brains around the way this character is written because this kid is, again, terrible. And uh, is willing to murder his brother and is very, very, very young. And uh, the idea of uh, the ability and the um, – what's the word I'm looking for? That there's actually the possibility of committing a crime on that level you know, with this young person. And then what do you do with it in terms of justice? I mean these kids themselves – Samson is you know, 17, 18 years old. Looks like the kind of you – know, you would try as an adult. Oh yeah, because yeah. he's, he's a big, thick boy. Yeah, yeah. even Keanu looks twenty four, twenty five. Right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so there's really none of that same kind of feel. But I think by writing Tim the way that they have, mm. it raises the question: if he had gone ahead and pulled the trigger and killed his brother for snitching, right? Um, if that were the case, then um, how would you try this child? I, I think what we're kind of butting up against is the question of teenagers as a cinematic device, though, right? right. Because I think movie teenagers and real-life teenagers are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. They just aren't. Because movie teenagers are always written by adults, 
by and large, and almost always played by adults. Uh, teenagers are rarely played by teenagers, are usually played by, at, at best, somebody who's like 18 or 19, usually people between the ages of 20 to 24. Um, so I, I think teenagers as a cinematic device are super useful, but they only inform adults thinking about when they were teens. And I, I think that's kind of the trouble about making a teen film that wasn't written by a teen. Uh, I think the only example I can think of is uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Uh, Jablowski? Jablowski, yeah. Yeah, Jablowski. I think I, I, was, I was just afraid that I wasn't going to get his name right on the first try. <laughs> uh, just kind of sneeze with the ski at the end. <laughs> you got it. Um, he, he worked on that, that novel uh, shortly after high school on and off, so I think that's a big part of why there's a, a, a real sense of realism in that film because he, he started working on it as a teen. But there's so... So few examples of teens in cinema that feel authentic to me. Um, I, I think Lady Bird's a great example. I already mentioned it. Uh, and I think Perks Being a Wallflower is a great example. Um, but, but teenagers as a cinematic device is this, this kind of different thing because it's always adults trying to unpack their own bullshit through teens. And sure, do teens murder other teens? Yeah, all the sure. time. All the time. But we're always going to be removed because we're always adults looking backwards at our, our own teen life and our own teen life is different than the lives of teens that are currently teens. Mm -hmm. So trying to package this idea of a person, this idea of an age group into a film is always going to, you know, butt up against that, that Werner Herzog aesthetic truth thing that we talk about all the time, right? It's, it's going to be an unreality that might get at a bigger truth, but it's always going to be a lie to some extent. Well, I think to Dustin's point, I mean, thematically, I think that, that, um, Tim's character really kind of embodies this fully, you know, unveiled darkness that, that is kind of running through this town, through John and through mm -hmm. Lane and, and, and through Matt and through his family and just kind of w culturally, I think, where the the society is at, at at this point, kind of this oncoming jaded nihilism that I think you're starting to see out of Gen X and the, the how younger that would shape their yeah the younger portion of the generation yeah, absolutely and mm -hmm. how that would you know eventually shapes media I mean music and mm -hmm. film and, and you know, literature and everything there and, and I think in that he's more of a kind of existential force that's you know all these actions this is this is what it's shaping is this a thing a thing a force, a presence, something malevolent. Right. Well, I just think t uh, Tim also captures something that's probably a more authentic kind of teenage mind in some senses, because I do think we kind of project uh, a certain maturity or uh, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is quite, but a, a certain thought process that is more adult than is fair. Yeah. Uh, when we look at teenagers, because I don't, Tim is only, Tim, Tim and Lane are pretty close together. Lane is thinking, this is my buddy. I got to back up my buddy. That's what I got to do. That's all I got to do. And it's the only thing that matters to me. Right. Uh, in the same way, uh, Tim is like, you think, if you think, you die. That's just all there is to it. We've, we've risen the stakes to death, and therefore you've got to die. That's that's all that's got to happen. And the way teenagers, you know, again, process, if you've been around them much, it's it's not like adults process. I was watching Spider-Man Homecoming the other day. This is an illustration. So I, I could tell by the way you changed the timbre of your voice that we had now entered in illustration land. Uh, there you go. I was watching this, and when Tom Holland and Michael Keaton have their, like, confrontation in the car. Good scene. It's a great scene. But um, any real teenager, and I hate to say this, a real teenager, now go out there and have a good time with my daughter. That's exactly what that teenager would have done. 
You think so? Even if he hadn't, even even with superpowers, no, wouldn't matter. A real teenager would be like, "That was bad. Now this moment is now, and this is only all that matters is what's right now." Mm. Um, Because I live with one, and (laughs) that 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 that's that's how their brains. I I don't know, man. I was a pretty anxious guy even as a teenager. Uh, I, I would have shit like get me wound up for three days. Yeah, well, I mean, and again, but, but it's a fair point. You're right. Every teenager is different as well. But yeah. it, it seems to me that a more typical teenage response is that was that moment, and that was the only thing that mattered. Everything was very, very intense. Oh, I just saw you in a pretty dress. All I am is horny, and I want to dance. And that would have been the end of that. Okay. I mean, that's kind of where the rest of these teens are, right? right? I that's mean, fair. they see this dead body, and they're like, I got to get back to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the arcade, play pinball. It's not, not my problem. Well, yeah. I think now is a good time to bring up the gender politics of this film. I didn't yes, think we were going to get to this until later, but the teens that do react to the body are Clarissa and Maggie. Mm-hmm. Clarissa and Maggie can see themselves in Jamie because that's the body of a dead, their dead friend who's also a female. And I think there is this... I'm going to go ahead and call it... I'm going to attribute it to teen boys and not to men at large, even though I think you could probably attribute it to men at large as well. Mm -hmm. But I think the adult men in this film um, are portrayed as caring about Jamie's death. So I'll say within the context of the film, um, the the teen boys don't really have a lot of empathy for Jamie because they do not see themselves as Jamie. Jamie's not a boy. They see themselves as John. They see themselves as John, exactly. Exactly. Specifically Lane and Tim. Now, Matt, uh, Keanu Reeves' character... That's his whole character, right? Is knowing that something is wrong here and not being able to figure it out until about the end of the movie. He can't figure out why this sits so wrong with him. And it takes him the whole damn movie to realize, oh, it's because Jamie's a person and my friend. And even though John is going to go to jail, that's the right thing to happen in this situation. Mm-hmm. But it takes him the entire fucking movie <laughs> to get there. Uh, meanwhile, Clarissa and Maggie almost knock out John immediately. Almost immediately do they call the murder in, and they decide it's not worth the trouble. And I think the underlying tension there is they know if they call it in, they might get killed too. Which brings us back to my standing thesis of teenagers, Uh is that they're all sociopaths. They have zero percentage empathy. I think that's fair, because what what we're being presented with is when teens cannot see themselves, and that gender divide, whether, let's go ahead and attribute to social factors, but that gender divide that has been imposed stops teens from being able to empathize with each other sometimes mm-hmm. across gender lines. Now, again, some teens are way more plugged into the uh, the love of the universe uh, than other teens, and of some, course, some of them yes. figure it out a lot younger. But this does not feel that dishonest to me, which is sad <laughs> and just deeply, deeply upsetting. Uh, but, but I think you're right. I think the ability to see themselves as Jamie is what motivates Clarissa and Maggie to know immediately that something's wrong. But then they also self-medicate and push down and, mm-hmm. and try to go on with their lives because they don't see an outcome where they can do the right thing without getting hurt. But what's pernicious in the de- in the gender politics here, though, is that these men have the power. I mean, Samson can squeeze the life out of Jamie. Yeah. Um, anybody, I mean, you know, Keanu. I mean, the only one that can't win a fight is Crispin Glover. But Crispin but, Glover, Lane, fully states that he will kill any narcs mm-hmm. pretty early in the movie. Right. He, he starts to imply, oh, is something wrong? Uh, Clarissa and Maggie, like, do you have a problem with what's going on here? Um, so it, the the stakes are made pretty clear to everybody that 
death is on the table, as you mentioned earlier. The stakes have been raised to that point. And so what prevents them by from acting on their empathy mm-hmm. and having any power in their empathy is the, the sort of patriarchal system of just, I've got the power, I've got the authority, either by the size of my biceps or whatever it is. Which gets brought around in a really interesting way with this friggin' baby boomer teacher that they have got. Oh, Good man, God. he is something, right? This Berkeley-going-ass, draft-dodging-ass bitch, he... <laughs> Well, he's dresses awesome down. at first. He seems cool. No, actually, he's not awesome at first. Okay. He seems so full of himself. From well, it, okay, he's very, very arrogant. I get he, that. He is so into how hot uh, Clarissa finds him, like, mm-hmm. in a, such a gross way, and does not take more than a second to dress her down in front of the entire class about what a terrible person and friend she is without any conception or context for what her relationship to Jamie is, what her relationship to John is. This teacher, I think, represents what you're talking about, though. Even when an authority figure can create justice in a situation like this, it is an authority figure couched in the same forces that cause these teens to not feel like they can be honest with authority figures because they know that they are going to be told that they are wrong and bad for being in a bad situation. And it just perpetuates the cycle, right? Right. And I think this is where we move into that sort of generational conversation because one of the uh, sort of uh, code names or secondary names for Generation X is Generation Whatever. Yeah. Right. And they just they just don't care. And that that's what the law of the discussion is. I mean, Jamie's dead, whatever. Um that's that's all we can do. Um uh, Seamus is dead, whatever. Um Rip. That, sorry, Seamus. Um but that's Part of what we're sort of experiencing there. And then we've got this, again, the the first, the very first little speech that he gives, I mean, before Clarissa shows up and gets real pervy, it, it's a pretty good speech. He's talking about, uh, you know, mobilizing, he's talking about protesting, he's talking about fighting the war and, you know, that kind of stuff and caring about things and changing the world. And it is very braggadocious, like, we did this, you know, we're awesome. I wish you I wish you kids would be more like us, mm. which is which is gross. Look, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but 30 years out. It's like, did you do anything, bud? Because yeah. really all it feels like you did is kill my planet before I was even born. Correct. Um, so, yeah, they suck, too. But, you know, I mean, you know, students in the 60s. Yeah, credit, a, you're right. Credit where credit is due, for sure. Students in the 80s, there's a significant difference, right? Just in, in, in terms fair. of active, uh, activism. Not that there weren't activist students, but we're talking percentages and those kind of things. For sure. And so that sort of advocacy, is, is, I think, is part of what's going on there, is that these guys just don't care. They don't want to do anything. And that's where Dennis Hopper and his conversation with Samson also becomes interesting. Because Hopper also is a person who's murdered a woman, maybe. maybe. Yeah, it's, it's unclear if he's lying. Uh, or it just seems all crazy. talk, but it's... Not entirely out of the realm of possibility, all things he, considered. Because he, he's yeah. nut bar. Because yeah. he does murder a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He kills Samson. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why he kills Samson is because they there's there's no um, connectivity between them. Because despite the fact that uh, Hopper has killed this woman in his past, he loved her. Yeah. Right. Like there, he knows there, it was bad. It was a crime of passion. He knows it was the wrong thing to do. And yeah, John does not know that his murder was bad. It wasn't bad. It wasn't passion. It was just. I, I was bored. I was bored, and I kind of wanted to kill her, so I did. Yeah, it, it becomes this real, like, putting down a mad dog thing, right? It mm-hmm. becomes Feck making this choice, like, oh, this this kid's a sociopath. There is there is no light behind these eyes, and uh, if I don't do this, he's going to kill somebody else. And I do think that the screenplay kind of diagnoses a generation with sociopathy. You know, I just diagnosed a, 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 a term of life, you know, teenagers as sociopaths. I would disagree, because I think, uh, I see where you're going with that. But I don't. I don't know that it goes that far, right? Because it, it allows um, 
Matt, Keanu Reeves, Matt and Clarissa Ioni Sky to both come around, and it allows Matt to finally be able to reach out to Tim and be like, dude, I'm your brother. Are you seriously going to kill me right now for doing the right thing? And it takes that... Tim doesn't want to kill Matt. He just wants Matt to pay attention to him and yeah. like him. Yeah. Uh, so I think the film ultimately ends up being a little bit more empathetic, and I think that empathy comes from him in as a screenplay because he's about the same age as all the characters he's writing about, whereas Hunter, the director... He's born in 45 or something like that, so he's he's a much closer to age. I think the English teacher is the director's Tim Hunter. If it ended with Matt and the arrest, I, I would be more um, sympathetic to that. I'm not I'm not non-sympathetic to mm-hmm. it, but I think it's undercut a little bit because the last shots of the film are Maggie and the other long hair buddy um, talking to the news reporter. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it's so all about them. It's all about them, and I knew her, and uh, I also play guitar. And, and you know, okay, it, fair point. And and, and that's where yeah. I I really find this sort of again MTV generations another one of those diagnoses or little extra terms appellations that are given to them, and uh, that these these young people just they just don't they just whatever they just don't care, um, and that all the the me generation is another. another I thought me generation was uh, what they called boomers. Mm, I might be wrong. I don't know. I think think that's a boomer thing. I'm just thinking. They're all constructs, man. It's all constructs. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks for keeping us on track. All right, right on. Yeah, you're right. No, Arthur's right. But that's the. I think something that is in the mix there is that there is something bloodless, mm. you know, in this particular generation. The other generation is got maybe too much blood and, and not all of it good. You know, it's like all over everywhere. And there's some good things that are happening, like, you know, the civil rights movement and some really, really bad things happening, like, you know, Dennis Hopper murdering somebody. But Easy Rider's good, but also that all the, you know, hippies turned into all the yuppies. So what do we do now? Uh, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm just I'm really befuddled by the movie. I am too. And I, it wants to have this conversation, but it doesn't really ever get there. Well, I think it, it comes down to as I mentioned that the age difference between the screenwriter and the director. I think they're fundamentally approaching the the material from different points of view, and it just kind of leads to this whole muddled sensation that all three of us kind of felt while watching the movie. I think, and as Arthur's right, these all are. These are all constructs, mm-hmm. but they're constructs that Tim Hunter, the director, seems to buy into because he is actively addressing. And you know, we don't know what of the screenplay has been changed between writing and being put to screen. But as Tim Hunter being the person in charge for getting everything on screen, he's also the one responsible for this intense generational divide that's being spoken to in the film, right? And even if it is a construct, it's a construct somebody believes in. So I, I agree that it's just. Yeah, it doesn't get there. I, I'm absolutely. I'm right there with you. It's totally muddled in that conversation. It's trying to have. Do you want to talk about blow up dolls? Yeah, I don't really, but I think we maybe should. Let's talk about blow up dolls. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about me and, and me. me. <laughs> Thanks, all Arthur. the good times that, that all... I had <laughs> by <Hey>. myself. <laughs> Thanks, Arthur. I knew we were gonna have fun with that, Dustin. I like the face you're making. Uh, yeah. So, Feck is in love with a object. That is shaped like a woman, and most of the males in this film treat alive women like objects shaped like women. And then the dead woman, who is just an object. Yep. I mean, there's not really a whole lot to say about it other yeah. than that. The film kind of draws that parallel pretty clearly. That, uh, And again, it's another moment where it lets Dennis Hopper be a moral authority over these children. Like, well, Dennis Hopper has empathy for this inanimate woman-shaped object. Why can't these children have empathy for this real live woman? woman that's dead because you got to be crazy Ooh. 
Okay, well, that's all I want. Yeah, no, I, I don't really have anything else there either. It's it's just another moment where the film feels like it's trying to say something about you know generational empathy or uh, gendered empathy. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it does lead us to uh, Tim Hunter's uh, gross camera, though, huh? Yeah. Really a lot of uh, unnecessary nudity in this film. Look, I know there's a, a, a naked dead body is part of the movie, but you can shoot a naked dead body without sexualizing it. And you can position it differently. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. I know, because I watched The Autopsy of Jane Doe the same week that I watched this movie, and it does a much better job handling uh, uh, a naked body that's on screen for way more of the movie. Uh, the Autopsy of Jane Doe has a naked female body in it for most of the movie and does a much better job of treating it like a person. And it feels more clinical as well. And I think that's a big part of it. I think being, you know, that they are in a, uh, uh, oh my God, what's the word? Clinical. Medical examiner's office, yeah. Um, does does allow that clinical setting to kind of desexualize things. But you can humanize and desexualize as well. Yeah, though. absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think the film is doing its best to humanize Jamie. Um like Tim Hunter, like the, the the one moment that I'm specifically thinking of, it's very early. I think it's the first time that either we as an audience see the body, or the first time that John takes everybody to see the body. But there is a push in on Jamie's face, right? This, the camera really slowly yeah. zooms in on her face, and her breast stays in the same shot as her face for an absurdly long amount of time. So long that it looks like it's zooming in on her breast more than it looks like it's zooming in on her face for the beginning of the shot. Do you guys remember this moment? Yes. Yeah, it's really off-putting. And it was one of the, it was one of those early moments in the film Arthur where I'm with you that stopped me from getting on the movie's wavelength for about another 20 minutes. Like I just I was like what the fuck are we doing here, man? Like do we care about Jamie at all? Because uh, it doesn't feel like we do, and I don't know if Tim Hunter's. I mean, trying... the plot is that we don't. I know, and I, I don't know if the direction is trying to say, but this is the way that these boys are looking at the body. I, I don't know if that's what it's going for, but it, it doesn't really come across for me. It just comes across as this camera is leering in a way that seems unnecessary, um, and I, I think all this psychosexual, um, you know, violent sex um, bleed over that we're talking about kind of comes to fruition at the end of the movie. And a really weird cross-cutting scene. This movie's got a hell of a third act. Uh, it's where Ioni Sky and Keanu have sex in the park. And it gets cross-cut with John telling Dennis Hopper about the murder. And so we're watching John strangle yeah. Jamie while we're watching Ioni Sky just rail Keanu Reeves. Just absolutely yeah. pile drive him into the ground. It is an upsetting moment of I cinema. I don't like it at all. I don't know what the movie's trying to say yeah. at all. I'm deeply concerned for everyone on screen. I'm so sad, and I don't know what's happening. And if you are going to make me watch a murder and a sex scene crosscut, you, by God, better know what you're saying, because otherwise the audience is just going to go, what the fuck is happening here? Which is what I what happened to me when I watched it. It's a weird choice. Mm-hmm. Off-putting, yeah. Deeply. And I don't, obviously... That may be part of it. I'm Sure. I think yeah. it's supposed to be off-putting. Yeah. Maybe it's drawing the line that... John views this violent act as a sexual act. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know because it doesn't. It's its depiction of nihilistic teenagers is such that the movie itself kind of becomes nihilistic in a way where it doesn't care about any of these people enough to give them an interior life. Well, I do think the the sex scene is common. T- I think the primary text is the murder, 
yeah. and the sex scene is the commentary. It is the gloss of it. It is it, it is an expression of how he's feeling because he then talks about how alive he feels and how yeah. amazing it is uh, to have done this thing right. It's, it's it's like a person who's been seeing in black and white their whole life and mm-hmm. they've been given a shot and they can see color for mm-hmm. just a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like the experience is for him. Look, all I'm saying is. You know how you end up with somebody who does uh, sexually motivated murders? Is making movies like that? Yeah. Is, 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 I'm not saying movies are responsible for violence, but I am saying if like an eight-year-old who has had some weird stuff happen to them in their life and maybe had a head injury sees this movie at the wrong time, you just made a murder. So River's Edge, be careful. Films, be careful. Because mm-hmm. you don't know who's going to watch your movie. I'm not saying that we should uh, hamstring art at all. I would never say that. But I am saying that if you are inclined to make art, you have to be thoughtful and engaged with your own material because other people are going to engage with it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what you're saying, then you can say anything on accident. And it's it's just frustrating, man. It's a, bit. It's, it's a moment where you're like, this movie's maybe finally going to come together. And then that happens. You're like, well, shit, where, what am, what am well, I even doing what here? What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of weird third act stuff, did you see the really on the nose moment where uh, Chris McGlover goes to get back in his car after he's on the phone? There's a sign above his car that says, Jesus is says, coming. Are you ready? Yeah, I did see that. That was, that was funny. <laughs> so funny. This movie's got a good sense of humor. It really does. It's just. It, it does feel very Twin Peaksy in that way. It does. It's it, soap opera y, mm-hmm. you know, kind of stuff, you know, mixed with some real kind of. High-level drama. I mean, I think everything we're, we're talking about uh, kind of brings us back to where we were at the, in review at the start of the show. It's Lynchian, sure, but Lynch knows how to navigate tone, mm-hmm. and this movie does not. Well, there you go. Um, I think maybe we've reached a point where we can render a verdict on this movie. I feel good. So what we say, guys? Uh, shelf or trash? Arthur, you go first. Just going to go ahead and say trash. I, I, I don't know that there's uh, much added value you'll get seeing this movie. I mean, you've kind of heard us talk about it, and I think you'll know if it's your uh, flavor, your cup of tea. Um, but I, I know greater listener base, I would say probably skip this one. It's trash for, for where I stand. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Look, I, I have been wanting to watch this movie for a long time. Because I was very excited to see Keanu's like first big performance. I'm with Arthur. It's trash. Go watch Bill and Ted's first. Uh, it doesn't give you like nearly as clear of an idea of where Keanu's career is going. Um, but yeah, go, go there or check out my own private Idaho. I haven't seen that film, but but maybe that's what we should have done instead of River's Edge. Who can know? Sometimes you roll the dice and go. Let's check out this movie that nobody talks about, and which is more available. Yeah, it's also way easier to find in my own private Idaho, to be fair. Uh, yeah, it's trash. You can skip this one. It's I'm, I'm glad we watched it for the show. I think it's going to be a really interesting jumping-off point for this marathon, but you don't need to put it in your brain. Last week, I remember saying, um, I forget the context, but we were talking about firsts and whatever happened first in cinema and what matters most, you know, and that and how that's that's really kind of a stupid game, right, that sort of some film scholars really, really get wrapped up about. And this movie is first in a lot of things. It is, is, is a first instance of some of the same tropes that we're going to see later in Twin Peaks. It is a first instance of some of the things that we're going to later see in American Independent Cinema. It is uh, a first instance of things that we're going to see uh, with Keanu Reeves. But that being said, whatever. I think if you're interested in some of the the stones it touches as a touchstone itself, then maybe you ought to watch it, but buy it, own it, no. 
absolutely not. I say trash as well. Well, resounding. Wow. This marathon is off to a strong start. Well, well done. Shit. <laughs> we're, we're serving you well, Keanu. All right, Mr. Reeves. We're doing the Lord's work. We're, we're super sorry about that. We're doing the Reeves work. Yeah, look, we're we're trying to we're trying to remind America that Keanu is truly a North American treasure. Um, he he is the heart of a continent, and uh, I don't know, I'm full of bullshit. Let's yes. let's watch Speed next week, huh? Let's watch Speed. Uh, yeah. Speaking Dennis, of, speaking d- of Crispin Glover and Speed, let's watch it. Yeah, Keanu and uh, Dennis Hopper are going to reteam this time. They're going mano y mano. So exciting! I'm you super keep, excited. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not